All right, well, welcome you guys. I'm Steve, glad you are here joining with us this morning. This is a special day, okay? Uh, we have Phil and Diane Comer here with us. Uh, yesterday they did uh, just an incredible intentional parenting seminar. Uh, and this morning, uh, they're going to talk about marriage with us. Uh, now, uh, a, a little bit about them. Uh, first is uh, Phil and Diane, they started uh, West Side of Jesus Church in Portland. And that church absolutely exploded. It was the largest church in Oregon. And they actually started uh, Ecclesia. Uh, we were birthed out of that church. In fact, Wes uh, was sent here by, uh, from them and planted Ecclesia. And I was sharing this in the first gathering. I remember when Wes called me and I was a youth pastor in Spokane. He said, hey, pray for me. I'm driving down the state of Oregon and I feel like God's telling me to plant a church somewhere. And so we just, uh, it's amazing to think what has happened since then. And we just thank you, you guys, for being faithful, obedient in that, and all that's happened as a result of that. Uh, but they're talking about marriage. Why are they talking about marriage? You guys have been married almost 45 years, okay? Um, and I think that when I say 45 years, it's not they've tolerated each other for 45 years, right? They've figured out how to be really good roommates. They eat well at dinner together. No, uh, it's very clear when you spend time with them and their reputation precedes them, that they absolutely love Jesus and love each other. And when I think of just myself and uh, the marriage I hope to have and to cultivate and to grow in, it's people like that that I look to and I go, it's possible. It's possible. And so we get the opportunity to just learn from them this morning. And so um, I, want, I want to encourage you, take advantage of this. And also, I addressed this last week. If you are, uh, maybe you haven't been married yet. Maybe you want to be married. Maybe you've been married. Maybe you're divorced. Maybe you don't want to be married and you're here. Um, this will be helpful for you either way. Okay? Marriage always brings us back to the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. And, and so you're gonna be challenged and encouraged by what they're gonna share with you. So I would just uh, encourage you to really engage uh, in this time. And we'll be in Revelation next week, okay? We're to the good stuff, all right? We got <laughs> Revelation 19, okay? So with all of that being said, let's bring up Phil and Diane, just welcome them uh, as they come and minister. Hey, good morning, everybody. Yes. Oh, I just looking at your faces. You are definitely the younger, more awake crowd. We made it through the nine. Where were you? You were out running, you fit-looking people over there. I'm very impressed. I've run a 10K, that's it, and I about died. Like, my wife did a half marathon, and she about died, but uh, not my gift. And I, I'm a basketball guy, but I'm not as good as Steve. Um, by the way, don't you love Steve? And I just met Lindsay. Very amazing. So and um, yeah. we met quickly the last time we were here, which is, I don't know, five, six years ago. So it's yeah. good to be back. Some of you go, we don't know you guys. We don't care. Well, hey, we, we care about you. And we feel right at home. As soon as you started singing and worshiping, which reminds us of the church that we planted in Portland, which then helped plant this with Wes and just seeing you singing and hearing the songs and being in such a gorgeous church building. <laughs> it's a gym. <laughs> you know, we started in a middle school cafeteria. There were pizzas and hot dogs painted on the wall, and it was not where you'd want to start, but the Spirit of God was there, and the joy of the Lord was there, and so we feel right at home with you, and we're super, super glad to be here with you. We are going to talk about marriage, and uh, it's good to see some of you have Bibles. Um, you know, a lot of people now don't even bring their Bible to church. They've got their iPhone or their iPad. They're taking notes. Nothing wrong with that. No guilt. However, there's a revolution happening where pastors are starting to say, hey, bring an actual Bible with you. Go analog and write in it. And some people say, oh, it's the word of God I can't write in. I have notes all over my Bible. I have the same one I've been using since I came to the Lord. I wasn't a Christian growing up. And sometimes I'm reading it now and I see a note I wrote four years ago and I remember what God did in my life. And so uh, I just would encourage you, I call it join the revolution, back to paper. And I'm so glad you're pre, I gotta get going, but you're, this is a second service, we can go in two hours, right? No, no, I'm, I'm joking. You're preaching through Revelation. That takes a lot of courage. Yes. I asked our pastor to preach to it. He's going to, but he's not quite ready. So he went into Genesis first. But man, the marriage supper of the Lamb is coming. 
So, man, I just love the book of Revelation. And God says there's a blessing just in reading it. So I hope I, I want to be here next week, but I can't. But anyway, I'm glad you're going to be. All right, here we go. We're going to look at the scriptures together today and talk about marriage, not so much the theology of marriage, which is fascinating. As Steve said, it's the gospel. It's a picture of the relationship between uh, followers of Jesus as the bride of Christ and Jesus as the bridegroom. We'll cover a little bit of the theology, but we want to talk about what the Bible says, the, the biblical truths about marriage and how they play out in everyday life, down where you live, where the rubber meets the road. Simply put, what does it take to have a marriage that's not only healthy and holy, but happy? Because let's face it, there are a lot of unhappy marriages, and some of you know people that are in an unhappy marriage. It's a very painful thing. Maybe you're in an unhappy marriage today, and I, I'm sorry for that, but I want you to know you don't have to stay there. You can change today. Jesus is always saying, come to me, come to me. It's all over the Bible. Come to me if you're burdened down. Come to me and I will give you rest. Seek my face and you shall find me. He's always saying, come, and when we come to him, he can change our life in an instant. His grace is so amazing, he'll forgive us of all our garbage in an instant when we're truly repentant, and he can come in and bring new life, new joy, new peace, just like that. Our pride resists it a lot, but sometimes when we humble ourselves and take a step towards him, he is right there. Everyone wants to live happily ever after. It's all the movies, right? All the Disney stuff. Nobody wants to live unhappily ever after. Did you ever meet somebody? My goal is to live unhappily ever after. Of course not. <laughs> Some of you today, you're happily married, you're loving life, your spouse is treating you amazing. Others of you perhaps are here and you're not married, but you want to be married. And that's a good and holy and godly desire. Some of you are here today, you're having a hard time. You're married and maybe you even wish you weren't married. Some of you maybe got into a fight on the way to church. Isn't that the worst? You have an argument out in the parking lot, then you walk in. How are you doing today? Oh, we're fine. Thank you. You know, we've all been there. We've all done it. But all of us who are married have discovered a truth. The Apostle Paul was right. If you look in the New Testament, he's talking about marriage, but first he presents singleness as a better option. He talks about the advantage of staying single is that if you're single, it's just you and Jesus. You can have what my Bible calls, in, in my translation, undistracted devotion to the Lord. You don't have to worry about pleasing your spouse. You just have to worry about living a holy and godly life and enjoying Christ and walking with him. But then he says this, and I think it's hilarious. You might not, but I do. He said, but if you're, this is scripture, if you're married, you haven't sinned. But you will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. <laughs> and every married couple goes, I know what that's like. We had trouble last night. We had trouble last Tuesday. Because you have two people who are being made more and more like Jesus, but we're not going to be like him until we see him face to face, the Bible says. So he's using you uh, in each other's lives to fashion you into more like Jesus. And there's some things that go on there that are uncomfortable at times. Well, in fact, before we just jump into this, I do want to ask, how many of you here this morning, you are married? Raise your hand. Okay, huge number of you. And I see a lot of uh, university students. How many of you, you're not married, but you hope to be one day? It's a godly desire. Don't be embarrassed about it. Okay. I, I remember as a new Christian, you know, I heard, Jesus is coming back. I go, well, don't come back till I get married. You know? <laughs> and then I thought, well, wait a minute. I'm supposed to be longing for his coming. But anyway, we're glad you're here because the best time to learn about marriage is before you get married. So take notes, write it down. You'll start it right, right out of the gate. We're going to see today that the biblical principles, though, for a good marriage, as Steve already shared, are those that create healthy friendships as well. Marriage is just a relationship. It's a very unique, a very special one, uh, declared and designed by God, but it's a relationship. And so those of you who aren't married, think about your friendships. If you're single, if you're dating someone, if you're currently separated or divorced, if you're in high school, middle school, I think they're off in classes now, but as you sit through this teaching, think about those relationships that you're currently involved in, starting with those closest to your family and apply them to your life. When Phil and I were first asked to talk about marriage, the first thought flitting through my mind, the most honest thought flitting through the, my, my mind was, oh no, not that. <laughs> 
The second thought flitting through my mind, also as honest, was, and not with him. <laughs> Because he knows the truth, and so do I. That sometimes, lots of times, way too often, we struggle and fail at doing marriage with any sort of gracefulness. For one thing, I'm a raging introvert, which means I like to be alone a lot. And I'm married to a full-on extrovert, which means he wants us to be together a lot, talking a lot, totally together a lot. And then because he's a man and I'm a woman, sometimes he doesn't, and I do, and we clash. But here is the bigger truth. We've been married for almost 45 years, and we are happy. We love each other. Even though I'm, I'm an introvert and he's an extrovert and neither of us, quite honestly, is perfect or particularly easy to get along with at times, lots of times. Our love has not been in a bubble. We, our love has withstood some real storms. Four children, for one thing, each bring their squalls with them, don't they? Four children who wanted and needed and disobeyed and demanded just like yours do. Never enough money for another. You don't choose vocational ministry to get rich, and I've rarely had a paycheck, and even then it wasn't much, and there were times when bills piled up and they were hard to pay. And then we started a church, which is akin to starting a business together. And the pressures of that and the hard work of that certainly brought, us out, at, brought out at times the worst in both of us. We've known heartache, real things, hard things, hard times. But here we are, still in love, no longer infatuated in the same way that we were at the beginning, no longer insecure or unsure of each other. After going on 45 years of real life, we still love each other and are well now on our way to growing old together till death do us part. And so today, as we share with you, we decided that we wanted to share just three lessons that we have learned as very flawed individuals, bringing our baggage and immaturities and hurts and brokenness into our marriage. But these are three things that have made for us, when we look back, all the difference in our marriage, and that always happened for us in points of crisis, where we would get to a place where we felt like we were stuck, we were ashamed, we were embarrassed by our own inadequacy, and we would cry out to God and dive into His Word, and He would show us some nugget of gold that enabled us to get past that and to get to the next level of being able to love each other well. These things are the things that have created between us what we say now is a love that lasts a lifetime. That's right. Well, we actually asked ourselves, what do we want to pass on to our own kids? We yeah. have four of them. What have we learned in marriage that we want them to know? And that's where these yeah. things came from. And then we kept getting asked to teach on marriage at this church at Corvallis. And so we, yeah. we had some more. And then they asked us a third time. And I said, I don't think we know anything else. But then we thought, no, actually, let's share those three things. We ended up with 12 things. But I'm not going to give them all to you. You'd be here all day through lunch. And you'd be starving. And you'd hate me. So we're going to go with just three. But if you're taking notes, whether it be in your pen and paper or on your phone, write them down. If you're not taking notes, I like to say, write them down. In other words, God's got something for you here because it's from the scriptures. We titled this message, Not Happily Ever After, but Happily Even After. <laughs> so if you want to be happily even after, here's the first one. Practice love and respect. In Ephesians chapter 5, and if you have a Bible and, and you haven't turned there, please turn to Ephesians 5. It's the clearest passage with God's instruction to husbands and wives there is in the New Testament. I call it the go-to passage for anybody who's married who claims to be a passionate follower of Jesus. And we don't have time today to walk through it verse by verse. There's so much theology here. As Steve said, the gospel is in this passage. But I want to read a portion of it, and then we want to make some observations about it. So beginning in verse 21 of Ephesians 5, God's word says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And I want to pause there because people get hung up with the, the, the word submission and, and, and all that. But I, the first overarching thing here 
it says, submit one to another. Husbands and wives are equally valued, equally loved by God. There's no one greater or more gifted than another. And we are to submit to one another out of our reverence for Christ. For many times, I learn things from her and need to submit to what she's pointing out in me. And she does it usually in a very beautiful way. <laughs> submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then God's word gets specific, first to wives and to husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, if the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Then God speaks to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Here's how. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 28, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it. Or another translation, he nourishes and cherishes it. Hang on to those two words, just as Christ does the church. And at the very end of chapter 5, in verse 33, is kind of God's final word on the subject, on marriage. Kind of his final instruction to husbands and wives. He sums it up in a very potent and powerful short verse. And it's important, it's sort of like, let's say your father in a hospital room and he's gonna die soon and you make it there and he calls you over to say his last words to you. As you lean in to listen, you know these are very important words you're gonna remember. It's kinda like God says, come close church. And then he says this, each of you must love his own wife, as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. There you have it. Two words, love and respect. Say those two words with me. Love, love. and respect. Now, God commands the husband to love his wife. He does not command the wife to love her husband. Why is that? Well, he's got to do whatever he wants, but wives more naturally are nurturing and loving. She doesn't need to be commanded to love me. I'm commanded to love her. Now, some of you know, because you've sat in many sermons, that the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and the Greeks had multiple words for love. We have one word for love, love. I love you, babe, and I love tacos. You know, you more than tacos, okay, at times. Anyway, uh, that, that's our only word. The Greek word here is the highest level of love, agape. Agapeo is the word. It's sacrificial, unconditional love. I'm commanded to love Diane with agape love. Here's my definition of that. To, it means to love unconditionally and sacrificially, expecting nothing in return. It's not I love you if or I love you because. It's just I love you even if I receive nothing in return. To love unconditionally and sacrificially, expecting nothing in return. This is how God loves us. He died for us. He demonstrated. Romans says God demonstrated his own love for you when he died on a cross for your sins. He didn't just say, I love you. He demonstrated it by shedding his sinless blood that we might be able to be forgiven by just believing in him through faith and repenting and saying, Lord, I need you. I want you. I receive you now as my Savior and Lord. Come into my life. It doesn't matter. All the garbage you've done can be forgiven in a second because of his death. And he's the example. This is how he loves us. And as a husband, I'm commanded to love Diane the same way, unconditionally and sacrificially, putting her first, her needs before my own needs, and literally laying down my life for her. And when a husband does even a decent job of that, your wife is really blessed. And it's a lot easier for her to then turn around and respect you when she's receiving that kind of love. When we planted our church in Portland, a lot of people came, just like a lot of people have come here. And uh, Nike is not too far from where we planted, so we had a lot of Nike people. And one couple came to our church. They were Indonesian, Ito and Adeline. And they lived about a mile from the church. They got super involved. They started serving, especially Adeline. She came early and helped set up and do food and stuff. And, and um, they had a nice house about a mile away. They had two dogs that she just loved, a beautiful garden in their backyard. And one day, Ito gets called into his boss's office at Nike, and his boss says, hey, we need you to go to China for two years on an assignment. So you're going to have to leave your house behind and go. And so he comes home to tell her, and she started to cry. She, didn't, she loved our church. She loved her life. 
She loved her kids. She loved her dog. She loved her garden. And she did not want to go. And so, but she had to go. She figured it out. Hey, the Lord's calling our, my husband and I to go. And so um, shortly before they left, Ito gets called into his boss's office, and his boss is chatting with him. And then he says, hey, how's your wife doing with the move? And he said, well, not well. I mean, she's still crying. She's not happy we're going. And then this guy, whom I've never met, I heard all this through Ito. He said to her, whatever is, when you get over there to China, whatever is your wife's concern, make it your number one concern. And I thought, when he told me that, I thought, wow, I wonder if that guy's a follower of Jesus. <laughs> because that sounds kind of like what the Bible says. So either he was a Christian who was really walking with God, or he was just a smart guy. Like, if you get over there and your wife hates you and leaves you and you're not going to be a very effective employee for Nike. So, yeah, make sure she's okay. I don't know which it was. But you think he'd say, well, just tell her to get over it and just get over there and make a bunch of money for Nike and we'll give you a big fat bonus. That's what I think he would have said. But no, he said, whatever is your wife's concern, make it your number one concern. That's Ephesians 5. That's sacrificial love. And he did it. He did it. And she made it through. <laughs> and she made it back. But to you guys here who are married, how can, how can we possibly do that consistently day in and day out? And I've learned there's only one way. I cannot do it with willpower. I cannot do it in my own strength. I can only do it through the power of Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20, one of my favorite verses, says, I am crucified with Christ. When I came to Jesus, he died and I was in him. The old Phil Comer is dead. The verse goes on, nevertheless, I live, but I'm still walking around. But it's not I anymore. Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have the power of Jesus Christ available to me inside of me. So I can't say, well, God, you don't really expect me to actually do this, do you? I mean, well, 2 Peter 1.3 says, his divine power, I think we have a slide for this, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. In other words, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to me to love my wife the way he asks me and commands me to do it. It isn't just going to happen because I'm a good guy. I've got to choose to draw upon that power. See, we're not robots. That's what's beautiful about our relationship with God. It's a love relationship. We love because he first loved us, and we respond in worship. We respond singing our songs, lifting our hands, because he loved us first. I heard a pastor say one time, and I, I love this phrase, without him, I can't. Without me, he won't. Say that with me. Without him, I can't. Without me, he won't. What does that mean? That means God's not going to say, well, Phil, you're not loving her, but I'm just going to do it anyway through you, and you're just a robot. No, nope, it's not going to happen. I can choose to not love her well and experience the brokenness that comes out of that, the woundedness that comes out of that, the hurt that comes out of that, the, the, the repair that has to come out of that. Or I can say, Lord, without you, I can't love her consistently this way. I love her, but I'm not going to do it very well without your help. But he is a very present help, Psalm 46 says, in time of trouble. <laughs> Remember, Paul said, I'm trying to spare you. If you get married, you're going to have trouble in this life. But he's a very present help in time of trouble. He's right there. And here's one more thing before Diane speaks. As husbands, we're not just commanded to love our wives. He tells us exactly how to do it. He says in this passage, he who loves his wife loves himself. Speaking of the husbands, no one hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it. Another translation I like better, nourishes and cherishes it. Remember, he's talking about marriage here. It's, it, it's a metaphor. It's a picture that a man is to love his wife by nourishing her and cherishing her. Now, nourish just has to do with providing for her needs, food, shelter, clothing, taking care of practical things. It's the husband's responsibility. We could do it together. She can earn money together. We can work together, but if things aren't, if we have no money, if there's no rent money, if there's no food, God doesn't look at her and say, hey, you need to take care of your husband. No, he looks at the husband and say, it's your responsibility to lay down your life for your wife and nourish her. Now, most guys are pretty good at that. It's the next word that we struggle with. We are to cherish our wives. That word in the original Greek means, means tender affection. 
Your wife is longing for you to love her with tender affection. And 1 Peter 3, another great passage on marriage, marriage, says this, Husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way. Now, I heard that the first time. I go, I'm pretty understanding. And then I heard another translation. Remember, our Bibles are in English translated, and there's different ways you can translate Greek into English. Sometimes the translators have to choose one word over another. Listen to this one. Husbands, you in turn must treat your wives with tenderness. It's another translation there of of a great word. Viewing them as feminine partners who deserve to be honored, for they are co-heirs with you of the divine grace of life. (laughs) They're they're equal with you. They're loved by God just as much as you are co-heirs together of the grace of life. Here's why. So that nothing will hinder your prayers. He's talking to the husbands. I'm not even going to hear your prayers unless you're living with your wife in a tender, understanding way. And I know in my life, sometimes I realize I'm being kind of harsh and brash with her instead of tender with her. And Jesus was strong, but he was also full of grace, and he was full of compassion, and he was full of gentleness. And I want to be like him. My parents' era... There was a song, maybe you've heard it before, called Try a Little Tenderness. And I remember that song at times when I'm not being tender. By the way, the Greek word translated tenderness means listen to this and get ready to get convicted. Conviction, by the way, is really good when it comes from God. Have you noticed when when you're not listening to the Lord, he's trying to gently correct you, but you're blowing him off, and suddenly you feel this conviction? But it's a loving conviction. It's not shame. It's not rejection, it's a strong conviction where God sees you going in the wrong direction and he, and he wants you to follow him. And it, it's a beautiful thing to be corrected by God. And so this word here, and I got convicted when I read this, it means, tenderness means with intimate insight and consideration of what she desires, what she delights in, not being ignorant of her preferences. Wow. That's true love. No, you go first. No, what do you want to do? No, I prefer what you want to do. Wow. And God says to me, if I refuse to honor her in this way, forget praying. My prayers are going to bounce off the ceiling. God's going to say, Phil, I love when you pray to me. I want to answer your prayers, but go treat your wife with tenderness first, and then I will hear your prayers. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you're not doing that today, Start doing it today. That's why we we look at the scriptures, because they point the way. It's God's word. He speaks, and then we have a choice to obey or disobey. When you obey, there's wind in your sails, and things change for good. Your wife's not going to be impressed if you say to her, hey, I told you I loved you once. (laughs) If I change my mind, I'll let you know. No, (laughs) that's not going to go over. She can never get enough of you telling her how beautiful she is, that you're glad to be married to her, how grateful you are that she puts up with all your stuff, in my case, messes. And you can never give her too many gifts. Ladies, can I get an amen? Amen. And then Diane told me to tell you this. So this is her, this is her speaking through me. Guys, <laughs> as your wife gets older, staying beautiful is going to be a little bit of work for her, and it's going to cost you. <laughs> She's a writer, and she wrote once, beauty in the mirror costs bucks in the wallet. <laughs> so don't be cheap. Don't complain. If you nourish and cherish your wife, you will not only honor God, you will be blessed. There's a return on investment. Trust me, guys. Trust me. I guarantee it. And you can tell a wife who's both nourished and cherished because there will be a certain glow about her. Now, remember that quote came out of the context of hearing husbands talk about how expensive their wives are as they get older. You mean makeup and shoes. Oh, (laughs) makeup and shoes. Once upon a time, a long time ago, I assure you, we got into an argument, a real argument. And I know that just might shock some of you. Pastors and their wives don't fight, do they? What was all that training and talking and generally being superheroes in the spiritual world? How could they possibly lower themselves to ugliness? But we do, and we did. But the possibility of coming out the victor in a scuffle with a professional communicator 
has a probability factor of practically nil. And so on this occasion, frustrated with my inability to wrestle Phil into agreement, because of course I was right, I decided I'd better write it down to make a list of all the things, make it very clear and linear so he would finally get it, all the things that I was frustrated about. Well, maybe more than frustrated, that I was mad about. If I couldn't out-talk him, I'd surely be able to outlist him. But first, this was in the morning after an argument the night before, first I thought, I'd better read my Bible. That's, that's what we do in this world. After all, we all know that winning an argument with a preacher requires scripture, like lots of convincing scripture. I'd come locked and loaded. But this was a Monday morning, and somehow I'd left my regular Bible at church the night before, so I rummaged around on our bookshelves until I found a different Bible, an amplified Bible. Aha! Just what I needed to amplify this message to get through to my husband. So I sat on the sofa ready to load up on all those I'm right and you're wrong verses. And just as I did open this Bible, a big chunk of pages fell out, literally spilling this part of God's word into my lap. And guess what verse fell into my lap? Face up, Ephesians 4, verse 33, in the Amplified. Now, the Amplified, it gives you all sorts of different options of how it could be translated. This is what I read. However, let each man of you without exception love his wife as being, in a sense, his very own self. Ha ha, there it is. I thought, surely this must be the Lord speaking to me giving me what I need to pound some sense into this husband of mine. But I kept reading. And let the wife see that she respects and reverences her husband, that she notices him, regards him, honors him, prefers him, venerates and esteems him, and that she defers to him, praises him, and loves and admires him exceedingly. I put my pen down and I tore up my list. And I got on my knees by the sofa and cried out to God, which is exactly what he'd been waiting for me to do, inviting me to do. And this is what God taught me on that morning, a life-changing lesson that would begin to change me and the way that I dealt with the differences between us. What I learned is that my husband didn't need a list of what he was doing wrong in order to love me in the way that I craved and longed to be loved. What he needed was a list of what he was doing right in order to be respected in the way that Phil craved and needed to be respected in order to thrive. And I've watched this over the years of leading and teaching and counseling and loving women, being a woman. I've become convinced that this, with all of our distinct differences as females, this is the one beautiful, mystical thread of sameness that runs in every woman's veins. We respect and therefore we love. It's almost as if God is trying to tell us something. Because the truth is, when I purpose to notice those things about Phil that make me prefer him, when I regard him through a filter of honor, that is when my chest fills with those feelings of love. And men, pay attention to this. This is really important for you to understand. Your wife's love is intangibly tied to her respect for you. Cannot separate those two. Sure, she can practice respect on purpose in obedience to the scriptures. I've seen some amazing women of God practice respect to husbands that are not living in a respectable way. But this truth ought to make a difference in the way that we live, you live the everyday with your wife. 
If you are living as a man, she can respect, not perfect, but as, as a man she genuinely can admire. You will be well on your way to creating a love that flourishes through the ups and downs, the hard times, and the great times of life. All I want to say is thank God for the Amplified Bible. Yeah. Amazon.com. It was great that that happened in our life. So if you want to live happily even after, practice love and respect. The key word is practice. Nobody's going to do it perfectly. Only Jesus loves perfectly. When you blow it, and you will, humble yourself and apologize. Six words that should be spoken often in your marriage is, I am sorry. Please forgive me. Take ownership for the mess up. Practice love and respect. Secondly, if you want to live happily even after, accept each other's differences. Romans chapter 15 says, accept one another just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Jesus didn't say to you, hey, you know, you're still kind of a mess. I'm going to forgive part of you. No, he took you where you were at, saved you from your sin, and he loves you too much to let you stay where you are. He's changing you into the very image of his son, Romans 8.29 says. And so he has accepted us fully. And he tells us that here in the family of God, we're to accept one another. Another translation for this word accept is to be hospitable towards one another or welcome each other. This is a very welcoming church. We came in this morning. They have a basket for us to send us home with, with presents and gifts and Steve actually acts like he likes me. I don't know if he really does, but I think he does. And uh, <laughs> we met Lindsay, and she had a big smile on her face. And Ian's type has been here. We've known him for years. We feel loved. We feel welcome. They have coffee for us. We, like, felt at home. Yeah. And, and it's wonderful when you're welcome like that. You know, we just moved to Bend, Oregon a little bit, almost a year ago. But we were living in Portland for many years. And, uh, but we would go over to Bend to record our Intentional Parents podcast. We recorded at our daughter's home because our daughter and son-in-law worked with us. I remember one time we were coming in the door. We couldn't get in the door because their four kids, oldest to youngest, were lined up. The first one wanted to push in his sister out of the way. I want to hug him first. And then Scarlett's right behind. She's hugging us. And then Bertie, who was six at the time, she's jumping up and down. Oh, man, pops are here. And the little one just held up her hand and said, hold me. You know, <laughs> We felt so welcome and so loved. And in marriage, we need to be welcoming to each other. I mean... Ladies, is that how you greet your husband when he walks in the door with a, a warm smile and a welcome? Or is it like, it's about time you got home. <laughs> Did you do what I told you to do? And husbands, <laughs> our wives need us to be welcoming to them as well. I wonder what would happen in our marriages if we simply practice being hospitable and welcoming each other. Bible, the Bible commands us as followers of Jesus, as the family of God, as the church, to accept each other. But if you want to have a marriage that's filled with joy, you need to go a step further than just accepting. You need to appreciate each other's differences. Not just accept each other's differences, but appreciate them. To you husbands, this is going to mean embracing the fact that God made your wife unique. She's not a carbon copy of you. Viva la difference. A while ago, when we were pastoring in Portland, you know, we took a test together as a staff. You know, there's all kinds of Myers-Briggs, all these different tests that help you kind of figure out how God's wired you and how you work together on the team. We did one called the Strength Finders Test. And before you take the test, they have you watch a video. And the video says, when you take this test, there's only one person in 33 million who will score exactly like you on this test. In other words, you're unique. So I thought, maybe if you could marry, uh, not marry, <laughs> if you could date 33, don't marry 33 million people. You really have to. <laughs> If you could date 33 million people and find that one person that's exactly like you, then you'd say, hey, we're never going to have any conflict. We're never going to disagree. You'd be looking at each other like, that's exactly what I was thinking. That's exactly what I wanted to have for dinner. And you'd think that um, life would be wonderful, but actually it would be completely boring. Because it's true. Opposites do attract, but then opposites attack. Why don't you do it my way? So I want to say to you, husbands, your wife is different than you, but enjoy the difference. Viva la difference, because God says your wife is very valuable. Proverbs, there's two verses from, I love Proverbs. I read it every day. Today's the 30th. I read Proverbs 30. But Proverbs 18 says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. 
That is if you find a godly wife. Proverbs 31 says, an excellent wife who can find? They're not everywhere. But when you find one, her worth is far above jewels. In other words, she's worth more than millions of dollars. God gave Diane to me. She belongs to the Lord. She's Jesus. She belongs to Jesus, and she is one of his intimates. You know, God has no favorites, but he does have intimates, and she's one of them. And he cherishes her, and he asks me to love her the way that he loves her. After having my sins forgiven, I was not a Christian growing up. I got messed up in sexual immorality. I was playing in a rock band for years. I got saved out of that. And the greatest gift I could ever receive was salvation from my sins and eternal life. Mm -hmm. And Jesus offers that to anyone. That's why he came. That's why he came to rescue us and to redeem the world. And he's coming back again. You're studying Revelation. He's coming back. And I need to be ready and looking for his coming. But after that gift of salvation, she is the greatest gift he has ever given to me, followed by our four children. She's a treasure. And if I don't treat her the way he wants me to, he's not going to be pleased. So I just want to remind you, your wife is a gift, but she's not exactly like you. She's better at some things than you are. She's gifted in areas that you are not gifted in. There's a lot of holes in our lives as men, and we're lacking, and they complete us in a beautiful way. Now, this can be hard at times. We had four kids, and, and the whole time we were raising them, I was a pastor, and she, Diane was with me in it all the way, 100%. But she stayed home. She loved pouring into our children, and we served together, and we parented together, but she poured out her life, some of the best years of her life, to raise our kids, who, by God's grace, are walking with Jesus now. And, but when the last one was launched, you know, as, as a husband, you know, you get to this point, they call it the empty nest, and a bunch of, bunch of people divorce them. They look at each other and they go, I don't even know you. It's like they have this common thing in the children, but they drifted apart. It became like a cold existence, and suddenly they don't, they don't have an intimate relationship. But don't let that happen. It doesn't have to happen. But anyway, I was still expecting, okay, now it's just about us, which means it's about me. Like, and, <laughs> And so she, as soon as he left, she goes, I just want you to know, Phil, that I, there's two things God's asked me to do, and I need to do. And she started telling me how she needed to write the story of why we raised our kids the way we raised our kids, and her story of losing her hearing. By the way, my wife is completely deaf. It would blow you away. She wears a thing called a cochlear implant. She'll be exhausted after this. She can hear out of this side, but when this thing's off, she hears nothing, and how God rescued her. So, so she was, I need to write these for our kids. She didn't write them to get them published, but they ended up getting published. So she, so she starts writing for hours. We had this little writer's cabin in the back of our house in Portland, and she's out there forever. It's like 4.30 in the afternoon. There's no, no food coming out. I go, what's dinner? She's not going to cook dinner. You know, I'm just thinking of myself, you know? And, uh, and I, I didn't handle it well. Instead of saying, babe, that's so great. Like, what can I do to help you? I was like, well, Really? I mean, how much time are you going to do that? I mean, I was not. I was not a, a husband who embraced this new thing she wanted to do. I didn't handle it well. I wanted her attention. I wanted her world to revolve around me. And we heard this saying way back when we were in marriage counseling years ago. It's, it's funny, but it's true. Women are a bottomless pit of need. Don't stone me. Men are an endless stream of want. <laughs> So if your wife is saying, you're just not enough for me. I need more of your time. I need more of you. The guy goes like, I can't satisfy. And if the guy's saying, I need, I need, you know, you're going to have a pretty miserable existence because <laughs> it's all about you. And if you haven't figured it out yet, when you come to Jesus, it's not all about you anymore. It's all about serving him and dying so that you can experience resurrection life and him loving through you. And then man, that's where the real joy comes from. But Ephesians tells me, and I didn't read this part, that I'm to present her holy and blameless before the Lord washing her in the water of the word. I'm to serve her and help her become everything Jesus wants her to become. And because she was and is a gifted writer, her gifts then became my responsibility. And I had to learn not just to tolerate her gifts, but actually love and appreciate them. And more and more, I do. And he does it beautifully. And our love has grown by leaps and bounds. To hear my husband believe in me and actually talk about and live out stewarding who I am instead of trying to make me somebody that I'm not. That's not the world that we necessarily, the culture of church that we actually grew up in. It, so it was, Phil was very much um, blazing a trail in our marriage as he was confronted with the scriptures 
and began to see that God had a, a better way for us. But the truth is about Phil and I that we are just opposite extremes. I am this introvert who needs vast amounts of time alone to think and read and study and think and read and ponder. Phil is this extrovert who needs plenty of time to get out of the house and do stuff and play. He needs to have fun. And we were raised in entirely different kinds of families. My family's highest value was keeping the home beautiful and running well and super organized. So, so much so that my family's motto could have easily been, should have been, the family that works together stays together. And Phil's motto, the family that plays together stays yeah. together. Where are my people out here? <laughs> yeah, there they are. Don't ask where your people are. Every year after a long, fun summer of going to the beach, we lived in California and having fun things to do, my family Labor Day weekend would be coming along and some big work project would be planned. Something the whole family needed to do together, chip in together, all five of us working to accomplish whatever it was my dad had decided it was that day. And it was so fun. Mom would make cookies, dad would have a barbecue or something smoking on the grill while we worked all together on Labor Day. Now, Phil thinks that's just appalling. Well, you were like painting the deck in 100-degree yes. weather. Yeah. And I said, it's a Labor Day holiday. What don't you understand about that? It's a holiday from work. And so we, we, we got into, uh, it wasn't our first fight. Our first fight was on our honeymoon. That's really depressing. Worst. So if you, have, if you get married and have a five-year honeymoon, don't worry, you'll get through it. We're still married, okay? But it is depressing. This was one of our first flight fights. Yeah, we, and we still <laughs> argue over the garage isn't neat enough. Whatever. Let's keep going. We haven't worked it out yet in 45 years. Trying, you know, it, Labor Day is celebrating that we can work and achieve yeah. and get stuff yeah. done. Right? It's a big rush if you pull into a perfect garage. And in Oregon, it's muddy all the time. So it's only going to be perfect until you drive the car, and the next time it's going to be muddy leaves everywhere. So why, so why bother? That's Phil's philosophy. And so, as you can imagine, we have had a steep learning curve in order to satisfy both of us. Phil learning why a clean garage gives such, me such a rush, and me grasping his immense need to have fun. I don't need to have fun. It is such a waste of time. There's work to be done. What I do need is time to think and that clean garage, yeah, the right. clean garage. Even while we were first preparing this message, Phil kept saying, let's have fun with this, Di. Well, we didn't have a lot of time to prepare, so at 6 o'clock on a Friday morning, we were sitting side by side at the kitchen counter, putting our notes together, and Phil prayed, God, help us to have fun while we prepare this message. And I thought, fun? Who cares about fun? We need to get this done. We need to get to work. But then I went out to my little cabin in the backyard where God had so often met me with the gentleness of a father who knows and understands and values and wants to actually connect with me. And I, he brought these words back to my heart. I felt like I heard him saying to me, he does need to have fun, die. How I made him, it's what you love about him. Get that serious frown off your face and lighten up. Make this fun for Phil. As if it's my job to make this fun for Phil. We are learning that in order to live happily and love for our, order, for our love to increase and grow, to get better at loving each other, we need to create a place where each of us can thrive. Not his way, not my way, not 50%. We take on that task for each other. I promote as if it's my mission in our marriage, Phil's need for fun. And I even try to be fun, or at least to lighten up a little occasionally. And Phil protects my need to be alone enough to refill and to gather my thoughts, and at least tries to understand my need for order. 
Here's what I have learned, though, about the difference between the way a woman comes into a marriage and the way a man comes into a marriage. Those of you who aren't married yet, pay attention. Women marry men hoping, suspecting that they'll be able to change them up just a little bit, you know, a little tweaking here and there, neaten them up, get him to see the world my way. And men marry women hoping they will never, ever, ever change, that they'll stay that sweet, compliant, skinny woman that they married. Right, Sal? I'm not going to answer that question. Number three. If you want to live happily even after, practice love and respect, appreciate each other's difference. One more. Stay best friends. Stay best friends. In the book of beginnings in Genesis, we read that after God made Adam, after he made this beautiful world, we get to enjoy the moon, the stars, the ocean. After making it all, he said, it is good. But then he declared that one thing was not good. He said... It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable or corresponding to him. To state the obvious, when God said it isn't good for man to be alone, he didn't create three buddies for him to hang out with and watch the Oregon Ducks play. He created Eve, his Eve for Adam, the one who completed him. Which is why Genesis 2 says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh, echad. A Hebrew word means glued together in such a way that to separate it will destroy it. This is why God hates divorce. He loves people who go through divorce. If you've been through a divorce, he loves you. If you're in the midst of a separation, he loves you. He loves you. He sees the pain that divorce causes because he glued something together that is being ripped apart. Your wife, guys, completes you. She's your partner in life. You're glued together. You are one flesh. She's to be your only lover, but she should also be your best friend. And you need to stay best friends. When our, we have four kids, uh, two boys and two girls. When our last one, our youngest son, Matthew, was born, he was on his honeymoon, and he Instagrammed, I married my best friend. He was in Bali. I mean, if you're in Bali on your honeymoon, you should be saying, I married my best friend, you shouldn't have gotten married, right? And I thought, that's beautiful, you know, I married my best friend. Um, by the way, some people say your dog is, your, is a man's best friend. And maybe you've heard that before, and there actually is some truth to that. I heard, I heard this said one time, if you want to know who your best friend is, your wife or your dog, lock your wife and your dog in the trunk of your car, come back in an hour, open the trunk, and see which one is happy to see you. <laughs> <laughs> you need a good laugh and then a good lunch. All right. When, when we put this message together, we were going to call this last point, be best friends. But we changed it to stay best friends. How do you do that? That's another message for another time. Ask Steve and Lindsay. But in the Song of Solomon, God's book on romantic love and marriage, we read a phrase, this my lover, this my friend. And in the New Testament book of Titus, Older women are told to teach the younger women to love their husbands and love their children. Now, remember, the New Testament is written in Greek. I would think that the word love there is agape, the sacrificial love that the husband is commanded to love his wife. I would think God would say to the wife, love your husband with sacrificial love and love your children. That's not the word. It's the word phileo, which is friendship love, the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. God is saying here that he's commanding the wives to be friendly toward their husbands. Paul says to Titus, hey, tell the older women in the church to teach the younger women how to phileo their husbands. Because they not phileo their husbands, but be friendly towards them. Most wives I know are really good at loving their husbands. We serve, it's almost instinctive. It's somehow it's just in our DNA. We take care of them keeping their lives running smoothly, watching out for things that they need help with. But being friendly, too often we start to act like the CEO of the corporation. We're barking orders and evaluating our employees. And that, trust me, does not work real well for creating a love that will last. 
We were with some friends of ours that Phil mentioned already, the Eggeriches, who teach the best conference on marriage I have ever been to. That was a big paradigm sh shift for us after like 30 years of marriage. Um, it's called Love and Respect. And if you haven't been and you see it, go or get the book. In person is better because in person, uh, they're just really funny and enjoyable and it's self-deprecating humor. But he made a statement while we were having lunch with them that just about blew my socks off. Here's what he said. Men marry their wives because, and I thought I knew exactly what I was going to say, because he thinks she's beautiful, because he's madly in love with her, he can't live without her. But this is what he said. Men marry their wives because he thinks she likes and I said, whoa, wait, back up. Are you serious? Men marry women first and foremost because he thinks she likes him? That's crazy. But there was Phil sitting across from me, the table from me, nodding his head a little too enthusiastically for me to be comfortable. And I need to stop and tell you men something right here. That is not why your wife married you. She did not marry you because she thought you liked her. She married you because she was madly in love with you and you were madly in love with her and your life together was going to be wonderful and perfect and so romantic, just like when you were dating, right girls? Can I get a yes? That's why you married your husband? Girls being friendly, and you're all girls to me. I am now in the older woman category, and it is so fun. What you have to look, don't even believe the ads you see on TV. It's like all of a sudden you look good for your age. It's a great qualifier. But girls being friendly to and about and towards your husband is crucial more vital than any of us will ever quite understand. We're just made up relationally different. If we're to nurture a vibrant love between us, we have to develop this sort of friendliness towards our husband and keep it up. Of course, he wants you to be beautiful inside and out. He's pleased that you take such good care of him. He's impressed that you're smart and skilled and good at what you do. But what trumps all that in the mind of a man is this one thing, that you are friendly towards him. And that means you are thinking friendly thoughts about him, not evaluating and critiquing and trying to sharpen him up a little bit. It's that you talk in a friendly tone of voice. We went to a, a seminar or heard a teaching once about people on say, in sales, and they all seem to nod their head and know this, that if you are talking to somebody on the phone and you're smiling when you're talking, how that just so increases your ability to sell whatever it is you're trying to sell. What if we started smiling at each other when we talk to each other? Your face all of a sudden takes on a friendliness. I would just challenge all of us, both husbands and wives, but especially us women, to put on this kind of friendliness this phileo kind of love to our husbands. As we wrap up, yes, as Diane just said, guys, your wife wants you to be friendly towards her as well. I heard one time, no one wants to cuddle a porcupine. <laughs> so be friendly, be gentle, be kind. Your wife wants you to be a friend to her as well as her lover. And this is going to require you paying attention to her, listening to her, taking walks with her. And if you're anything like me, putting down your iPhone. Di needs to know when she wants to talk to me that I'm giving her my attention, my undivided attention. And she looks to see if I am. She wants me to be friendly. She looks to see if I'm listening to her. All it takes is one glance at my phone. And she doesn't have to say anything. It's all over her face. I'm not important to you. You're not interested in what I'm saying. You're more interested in who might have just texted you. And so I, I need to put it away because she needs to be heard. I heard a quote once from David Augsburger. Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. And so I'm learning to be a better listener. She is 
always been a good listener. That's why women pour their hearts out to her, because she actually listens well, and I'm learning from her. Every year, again this year we're doing it, we're saving up money because every year, God willing, we like to head down to Carmel, our romantic honeymoon spot on the California coast where we have spent a ton of time together over the last 45 years. When we lived in the Bay Area, it was a short drive. Now the place we had our honeymoon on is very expensive, so we save up for a long time and we try to get down there every year. Why? Because we don't want to say we once were best friends. We want to stay best friends. So if you want to be happy even after, if, and if you're not married and you just want to enjoy healthy relationships with those who are closest to you, these are three things you can think about and work on this week. I want you to say each one after me and then we're going to stand for prayer. Practice love and respect. Let me hear you say it. Practice, Practice love and respect. Appreciate each other's differences. Appreciate each other's differences. Stay best friends. Stay best friends. You'd be glad you did. Let's stand for prayer.